The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Amen. Good to see everybody. How cool is this morning? How awesome is this? Man, I'm telling you, we got a bunch of people here from, from way south, Florida, south Georgia, places like that. And um, so I feel like the Lord gave you all this snow as a gift. Um, he's disciplining us in some manner, I'm sure, because we've had enough snow this winter. But you're welcome. Um, our pain is your gain. Uh, actually, no, I love it. It's beautiful. I love the snow. And, uh, but what happens is when it snows, they call school off. And when you have small children at home, that is not what you're going for. Okay, so um, there's a reason you send them to school. Uh, but anyway, it's awesome. It's a Saturday morning, and it's snowing, and we're going to open God's Word together. We're going to study it. Um, and we're going to study a really difficult topic this morning. We're going to, I want to read a lengthy text, a lengthy passage of scripture. Uh, and, uh, and I want to get right into it. There's probably not going to be much humor as I, 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 I there's going to be a weightiness to it. Many of you grew up coming to camp here and, um, have, have, have come as, as teenagers and now you're back as college students. And, and, uh, I want to, I want to share a burden that sort of drives this message. This is the third time I've preached this message. I uh, preached it to our staff midsummer last year, preached it at the Iron on Iron Conference for uh, student ministry workers, and then we met and decided that it needed to be brought um, in this conference. And so it's, it's a message that has grown out of an increasing awareness of how many people in your demographic are turning away from the faith statistically I've heard my whole life well here's what it looks like kids grow up in church their parents take them to church or they're part of Sunday school they're part of youth they go to youth camps they get saved at least once a year at Winterfest or Super Extreme or or you know Marshmallow Wow or whatever like you know they they go and they get saved and then they go you know do whatever they do and they come back and there's a lot of emotion and if you grew up coming to Snowbird you know we don't do big invitations and but we do call people to a place of repentance and, and, and present people with the gospel of Jesus. And we believe that the gospel, let me say the good news this morning, is we believe the gospel has not only the power to save, but the power to keep you. And Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6, and he says, it is at just as a person might increase in sin, just as a person who's living in the slavery and depravity and brokenness of sin, that they might increase in sin, so as believers... We are saved and justified and brought into righteousness, but then we must increase in that righteousness. And there's a tension in that process where Jesus is doing the work to grow us and conform us more into his image. Romans chapter 8 says that's God's purpose for each of us, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, but that we have a responsibility in that process. And so there's this increasing burden that we have. People are falling away from the Lord. Multiple times in the last couple of years, including very recently, we have had people in our ministry, my wife has done this on more than one occasion, get on an airplane, fly to another part of the country or another part of the world to go look a believer in the eyes who has served in this ministry and beg them to turn away from their sin and come back to Jesus. Get, get on an airplane, a, a, a young lady who served with us for years faithfully went to the, to the mission field with the International Mission Board, faithfully served in a dark and difficult place, 
came home and drifted away from the Lord or fell away from the Lord or walked away from the Lord. And I can remember my wife being so burdened that on a Thursday, she got in her car, drove to Atlanta while I got on the phone and booked a flight. She flew, spent a day of travel to get to the city where this girl was living, caught an Uber, was waiting on this girl when she got off work to plead with her not to turn away. That, that's, the, that's the weightiness and the gravity of, of, of how we feel about this. And I want to tell you, I don't want to be, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in an in a independent Baptist, like if you know what that means, then you know what that means. If you don't, I'm not going to taint your view of Christianity. Uh, like, no, I, okay, that's wrong. Independent Baptists are good people. Fundamentalism and legalism is what I'm talking about. That, that was a poor choice of words. I have independent Baptist churches that come to Snowbird. But I grew up in sort of a style of Christianity that I, I think was destructive for me as a teenager. So I apologize for the way I worded that. But I remember it was very rules-heavy and rules-based. And I remember guys would get up and preach and say uh, and, and really preach these hard, challenging sermons to try to make us question our faith or question our sincerity or the you know like like do you know that you know that you know and they would use phrases like you need to nail down your salvation and I want to I want to encourage you this morning not discourage you because the scripture says this the word of God promises us that certain things have been written so that we might know that we have eternal life what God wants for you is assurance of faith confidence in the gospel a belief that rests on a firm knowledge that God will do abundantly and increasingly more than you could ever ask or imagine. That, that the one who has saved you is the one who's going to keep you. But with that, there is a tension and a reality that says statistically, many of the people sitting in this room right now at some point in the next few years will no longer be walking with Jesus. Statistically, that's what we know. And I would, I would go another step and say not only statistically, but experientially at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, we know this to be true. We've seen this to be true. I was recently looking. We have, we have a room with a bunch of uh, pictures of our summer staff year by year. And I was looking at one from less than five years ago recently. I'm looking at that picture. It's got all of our summer staff from that year. And I'm going through 150 people serving in that capacity. And I'm going through and I'm looking at the faces. And in one circle that I could take my hands and do this with, there were five or six people who have walked away from the Lord and now are living in a same-sex lifestyle. Less than five years. I'm talking about less than five years ago, they were here sitting under the teaching, the authoritative teaching of the word of God, and then ministering the gospel to young people and impacting young people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to give you encouragement and hope from God's word. And one of the things you're going to hear over and over and over this weekend is keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. We, it's, it started last night when we considered what real discipleship looks like. And who Jesus is as not only our Savior, but as the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then gave us incredible examples of that. When we look to Jesus and we care more about Jesus than we care about ourselves, we will care more about others than we care about ourselves. And when we're doing that, we, we tend to stay the course because I'm, I'm convinced that one of the things that correlates with people walking away from the faith is selfishness, self-autonomy, and this is like what the first sin is rooted in. We start thinking about ourselves, start thinking about where we fit into the world, and then we drift, we walk away, we fall away. So there's three categories. You can get to Hebrews chapter 1. We're actually going to only focus 
the whole message on one line in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. But I'm going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture here at the beginning before we dive into it. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we'll start and read. We'll focus in on chapter 2, verse 1. I want to, I want to give you three things here that are not really part of the sermon, but just sort of to set this idea up. And it's, it's to ask a question, why do so many people fall away, turn away, or grow cold and indifferent? Something that I recently wrote in my own journal and, and just wrestled. Why do people, here's the three categories, fall away, turn away, or grow indifferent? Those are the three things that I see happen probably most often in people that 18 to 25 age bracket, when they walk away from the faith, they either turn away or they fall away or they grow indifferent. And I think you could argue that indifference leads to turning away. And we're going to look at that. We're going to see the progression of that. So why, why does that happen? I shared with you the story of one young lady who chose to turn away and walked away and hardened her heart. And my wife, that story doesn't end well. Uh, it doesn't end happy. It ends with my wife leaving with brokenness and, 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 and crying eyes on a flight home where we still to this day pray for that young lady. But I recently sat around the fire at my house and had a young lady over that had served in this ministry. And it was the other, the other ending happened where she was wrestling with her faith and, and dealing with doubt and struggling with who she is in Christ and, and, and questioning the very foundations of our faith. And as we started to drill into it, what was obvious was she no longer had her eyes on Jesus. She was looking to the things of this world. She was distracted. She was busy with things of this world. And as we worked through things sitting around the fire at my house, you could see the Holy Spirit begin to work in her heart. And man, she's faithfully walking with the Lord now four or five months later, like, like steady walking with Jesus. So how do we stay the course when the waves of doubt come? How do we stay the course when the, like the pressures of progressive society come? How do we do that? You guys are living in a progressive culture. Well, Hebrews is going to help us understand that. So I'm going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture, um, and it's beautiful Scripture. Beautiful Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1. When we say we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, I want to give you, if you want a condensed picture of the person, the work, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Hebrews chapter 1 gives it to us. Let's read together. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, listen to this description of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's a key word there that we're not going to drill into. Salvation is an inheritance. Peter says that it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. So the work of Jesus to save is, is also going to be followed by the work of Jesus to preserve and keep. This is an inheritance. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a gift that we've been given, but that we must steward. We often say this, the, the gospel is free to us on day one, and the rest of our lives it costs us everything. The gift of salvation is given to us, and, from, and we pay nothing for it. Broken we come, destitute and poor, undone and depraved. We come to Jesus with nothing, naked and ashamed, exposed and uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, and he freely gives us salvation. The description in Ephesians 2 is that I was dead in my trespasses and sin enslaved in the ways in which I once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. But God gives us this free gift of salvation. We are inheriting a gift that God's given us. And I want you to, I want to pause right here and make sure you understand, if you are in Christ, you will remain in Christ. That's a promise of scripture. If you could lose your salvation, I think it was MacArthur that said this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So it's a work of God. He's the one that started the work. He's the one that's going to complete the work. So we have to consider that as the foundation of our security. It's not my work that keeps me saved, right? It's the work of Jesus. We are going to inherit salvation. But then look what the very next word he says is, and this is where we're going to drill into it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then he's going to go on and give a warning. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is the word of the Lord. I want to unpack verse 1 of chapter 2 just in the next few minutes because right after he speaks of our inherited salvation that rests in this Jesus that he's just described, he says, therefore. Now, the writer of Hebrews will do this often. The New Testament, you see this a lot. The writer of Hebrews will do this often where he'll use the word therefore. Let me give you, 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 you'll see in scripture oftentimes the word therefore, and I want to give you something to think about if you're a note taker. When you see the word therefore, I want you to think about this. What he's doing is he's turning from exposition to exhortation. I'll explain. He's turning from exposition to exhortation. In other words, chapter 1, the reason I felt like we needed to read that lengthy passage is here's this exposition of who Jesus is. What is an exposition? It is an explanation driving at one point, and the point is this. Jesus is supreme, preeminent, all-powerful. He is who God has declared him, him to be, and he is what the Word of God reveals him to be, and he is who he claimed to be. Therefore, 
And we've got this description in chapter 1. That's the exposition. That's the explanation. And so the therefore takes us from exposition to exhortation. What is an exhortation? It is a challenge to us from the Word where God says, because this is who Jesus is, this is who you need to be. Because this is what Jesus has done, this is what you have the opportunity, obligation, and responsibility to do. Because of Jesus, you fill in the blanks. And the Scripture does that for us. Exhortation. Everybody say exposition. Everybody say exhortation. Exposition leads to exhortation. This is how we connect the dots of Scripture. We're reading the Bible. We're not just collecting information. We're hearing from the Lord, and then we're being exhorted, challenged for the Word of God to take root in our hearts and change and shape the way we live our lives. So because of the exposition of who Jesus is, this is kind of like he's saying that based on the rich theology we have just unpacked, there is an appropriate reaction to be had. When he says, therefore, it's kind of like when your professor says, this will be included in the exam. We've got uh, Dr. Deuce here. It's funny, one of our, one of our ladies who's at, uh, over women's ministry here at Snowbird, Brooke Mitchell, last night. So she has Dr. Deuce's wife um, as a professor. And she said last night she wanted to go up to, you're going to appreciate this, Jamie. She wanted to go up to him and say, hey, um, so she wanted to introduce one of her friends to Dr. Dew's husband. I thought that was pretty clever because he's a doctor too. And so she, but, but when you're in class and the teacher says, this could be included on the exam. This, this is material you will see on the, the exam. This is going to be on the exam. What do you do? You go from like, you're kind of slumped in your seat. Your lunch is heavy. Afternoon classes are the worst, right? You're like, you're trying to stay awake and all of a sudden, hey guys, this is going to be on the exam. And there's this alertness that follows that, right? Like, okay, I need to pay attention. I need to take some notes because I'm going to be held responsible for this. The therefore is like, hey, pay attention to this. The author of the text is introducing us to one of the warning passages of the book of Hebrews, of which there are many, of which there are many. Based on what he has told us about who Jesus is in chapter one, he enters into the warning. Based on the, let me just give you a condensed version, seven things that chapter one just told us about Jesus. It said that Jesus is, number one, the final prophet through whom God has spoken. The final prophet through whom God has spoken. There's no more word to be given. Like all, th- so you know, in the Old Testament, you had these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these guys that what was a prophet's job was to take the word of the Lord and to declare and preach it to the people to, and, and do what we've seen in Hebrews, to give exposition and then exhortation to the people. Sometimes there were warnings. Sometimes there was worship through response. But the prophet was to proclaim the word of the Lord. Well, the role of prophet, listen, the role of prophet was fulfilled and completed in Jesus. He's the final prophet. There's nothing, no one's going to get some new revelation from God. As soon as somebody says, I got a new word from the Lord, as if it's like something that nobody else has heard, you need to run away from that guy. He is, he is going to lead you away from the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. When we believe that Jesus is the the final prophet through whom the Lord has spoken, here's what we're declaring, that the word of God is sufficient. Everybody say sufficient. The word of God is sufficient. What does that mean? It means there's nothing to be added to. God did, we've all done a, like a, a, a report or we've had to do a paper where you get done, you turn it in, maybe it's a presentation and you go, dadgummit, I forgot to add this or say this or I wish I wouldn't have put that in there. God has never done that about his word. When Jesus spoke, The word of God was given. In the beginning was the 
Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus gave us His Word, He gave it to us in authority and in sufficiency, meaning there's nothing lacking from it. If it's not there, God intended for it not to be there. We don't get to fill in the gaps. Let me tell you the danger of where people fill in the gaps. Social issues, sexual issues, relationship issues, worldview ideas. Listen, the gap, when, when there appear to be gaps, there are no gaps. God has given us what we need. His word is sufficient. Jesus is the final prophet. Number two, what else did it say? In chapter one, it said, he's the creator through whom God has spoken. He's the create. Jesus is the creator through whom God has, sp- has spoken. Number three, it said, he's the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. Number four, Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory. This is a really vivid picture in chapter one when it says that he's the exact representation of God's glory. This is like saying Jesus is not a reflection of who God is. He is the exact emanation and and like representation of who God is. Let me give an illustration using the sun and the moon. If you go outside on a really like a full moon night, okay, And you go outside and you stand and you look at the moon and it's just so bright, isn't it? Isn't it? But is the moon really bright? No, it's just a round rock floating around out there, right? And we we landed on it. We walked around on it. You look at those pictures. Those cats are up there walking around on the moon. And some of you come from families of conspiracy theorists who don't think we've walked on the moon. You also think the earth is flat. Come on, y'all. Snap out of it. Get with the program. All right. So we land on the moon. All right. And the dudes are walking around. The moon is dark. It's a big rock. I always think, wonder, like, we're so impressed with ourselves when it comes to technology. Can you imagine that when we landed on the, on the moon, like, in, in just our solar system, the distance from the earth to the moon, right? It's tiny, right? you imagine God was slow clapping? Good job, guys. Y'all built, y'all built a little thing that would go from right? Like he, he spoke our universe into existence, universes and galaxies. He did this, and when we speak of the, that Jesus is the exact representation of God, we're not talking about him being a reflection. See, the moon, when it's bright, is just reflecting the sun, right? It's just reflecting the sun. And I've heard people say, well, Jesus is like that. He's reflect. No, Jesus is like on the brightest, hottest, sunniest day when you're receiving the energy, the heat, the warmth, the radiance from the sun. It, Jesus is like that heat that energy, that radiance that emanates from the sun. He is the representation from God to us. He's not a reflection of something. He is something. You see, he is something. So he's the exact representation of God. Number uh, five, he's the upholder of all things. Number six, Jesus is the priest who provided purification for all things. How did he do this? At the cross. The cross provided me with the only way to be saved. Therefore, it's the only message of salvation to a dying world. The cross shows me my need for a savior because it reveals my sin. The cross provided the answer to all of God's promises. We surrender to the power of the cross and we proclaim the victory of the cross because of the cross. Jesus is seated in victory at the right hand of the father. And number seven, the last thing he tells us about Jesus in his his exposition of who Christ is He says, Jesus is the king of kings who sat down at the place of honor. Sat down at the place of honor, surrounded by angels. Isaiah paints a picture of this where these angels that have never sinned, 
They're not like us. This is why the scripture says that angels long to look into these things. The gospel is almost like, how, why does God love these people? Why does he save these people? These, like it's, it's mysterious to them. Because these angels circle the throne of God, and Isaiah says they cover their face, they cover their body, they cover their feet, they hover, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They get it. They get it. Surrounded and worshipped by angels. Why? Because he's the king of kings. And when a king conquers in ancient history, he sits down. In his conquest. And so the scripture says he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So there's the exposition. And now we'll close with a warning. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention. So therefore, pay close attention to everything we just said. If we're going to condense everything that we just said into one exhortation, it would be this. Fix your eyes on that Jesus that we just talked about. Fix your eyes on that Jesus. I don't know what your view of Jesus is. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've wrestled with it and, and struggled. Maybe if, if you're not careful, I think there's two things that people tend to run into. A, a, a focus of Jesus as in his earthly ministry where he's touching lepers, feeding people who are hungry, ministering to those who are destitute. And it's beautiful to see Jesus do that. But I think also if we're not careful... We can become so theologically focused that we focus on the theological Jesus. In other words, we focus on the deity of Jesus. And then if we're not careful, we'll detach ourselves from who Jesus is in his person and work. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And as such, we have to see him and hold him in that tension. Fix our eyes on Jesus. So he says, pay close attention. And then the, 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 the second part of that is, lest we drift away from it. So, so play, pay close attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift. It's easy to read and learn about the Bible in an informative way. It's easy to have emotional appeal during corporate worship. It's critical that we grow in our knowledge of the Scripture, but that we also submit to what we learn and strive to understand. The Word of God will shape who I am and how I see God, but as we enter into the words of this warning, we are being challenged to consider and examine deeply the person and work of Jesus. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to be reminded of who Jesus is and look to what Jesus has done. We're to look to the cross, look to the tomb, look to the throne, look to the kingdom. The word of Jesus is finished and complete and providing salvation. And we have to keep our eyes fixed on him lest we drift away from it. I'll give you a, a, a phrase that is kind of my, my one guiding phrase in life day to day that I try to speak to myself. No one ever drifts toward holiness. No one ever drifts toward holiness. Your pursuit of Christ, your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of fidelity to the one who has saved you and brought you into covenant relationship by his blood requires every effort and energy. That's why Paul writes to the Colossians and says, him we proclaim, talking about this Jesus, the Hebrews 1 Jesus, and then he says, striving and toiling with all the energy that he powerfully works within us. The scripture describes the Christian life as, it uses different visuals and pictures that as, as believers we are 
Farmers that worked to cultivate and plow and work the fields were soldiers engaged in battle. We're UFC fighters or boxers engaged in combat sports. We're runners in a long race, a marathon or whatever it is, running this race. There's, there's the, there are these pictures of the Christian life that always evoke the idea of sweat and labor and work. But it's not because it's a works-based religion. It's because the gospel calls us out of darkness into light. And if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus, follow hard after him, the drift will always take us away from that. No, you're not going to drift towards Jesus, y'all. You ain't going to drift towards holiness. You're not because it's like there, there, was, there was this slavery that you were rescued out of and the, the danger is that you drift back towards that. That's the danger. We had a lady, my wife has a jail ministry, and a lady lived with us for, for quite a while that came out of that ministry. She made a profession of faith. She came to live with us. When our church got around her, she lived with us and in our home. She sat at our table, breakfast table, supper table, sat during family devotions. I have a, I have a pretty good-sized family, and, and we sit around and share the things of the Lord and watched her grow, and, and we baptized her, and she grew more into the image of Christ over the next couple of years. And then one day, she drifted, and she went away. And as far as I know right now, she's in prison. Like, what happens? Like, you, you don't drift towards holiness, and then you don't get, like, moments or seasons or days off. Like, every day that you get up, the world is real, the enemy is present, and your flesh is at work, and so we don't drift towards the Lord. I always think of Wilson, the volleyball, in uh, Castaway. You see that old movie? It's 20 years ago. Castaway, Tom Hanks, you know, he's got the, he's, he, you know, you, you live by yourself long enough, you lose your mind, you start talking to inanimate objects like they're, you know, your girlfriend, and so him and Wilson get tight. You remember this? If you've seen it, if you haven't, there's a, there's a point where, so he paints a face on his volleyball and it's like his best buddy. He gets shipwrecked or plane wrecked, ends up on an island, which it turns out, it turns out tropical islands are not all they're cracked up to be. And so he's out there being miserable. At one point he's got a rotten tooth and he has to break it out of his mouth with like an ice skate that he got off the plane. It's just crazy movie. It's a really crazy movie. But there's this moment where the, the volleyball falls off of his raft when he's trying to get off the island and the they're both, it's, I find it fascinating. Here's these two, this, this raft and this volleyball sitting in the same space, and then they drift apart, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just goes away. I, I, I was doing some research on ocean currents to kind of get a visual on this, um, and I read about a rubber duck spill. Cargo ship lost a container with 28,000 rubber ducks coming from China. A research Researcher tracked the ducks, and they literally landed all over the globe. They picked up ducks in the South Pacific and off of the Bering Strait in Alaska from one container that broke. Why? Because the, the, the picture of drifting is one of aimlessness. So let's consider in closing, and I want this to be five points of application and, and, and kind of bring this warning rubber to the road right here. Let's consider the causes, patterns, and effects of drifting. Because this is what I've wrestled with. Why do people walk away? I don't get it, man. Why does it keep happening? Why does it keep happening? Why does pro progressive Christianity seem to be pulling people away into this thing that's not really Christianity at all, this, this where, we, where we don't recognize Christ in the way that the writer of Hebrews lays it out? Well, first, consider the, the causes, patterns, and effects of drifting. First, there is simply the drift. What does that look like? Well, based on our text in verse 1, we stop paying close attention to the Word of God. How does the drift begin? Well, based on uh, our verse, Hebrews 2, verse 1, he says we must pay closer attention 
to what we have heard, lest, in other words, if we don't do that, we'll drift. We become careless. There's a constant current, a constant pressure applied to you. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, there is a constant pressure being applied to you in this world. Your flesh is constantly applying pressure. This world is constantly applying pressure. There's a constant pressure that if you, if you stop paying attention to the word of God, if, if, if you do that, you're going to drift. You're going to drift. We've all been there. Every one of us has been there. You drift. You drift away, right? We drift. It's a, it's a visual. But here's what happens if we don't address that. Here's what happens if we don't address that. The drift is followed by the doubt. The doubt. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, another sober warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. We begin to compromise and avoid the word of God, and it leads us to a place of doubting, which ultimately coincides with a lack of faith and belief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, by the way. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt is an assault on faith. Uh, St. Augustine said, and I know, I think you're supposed to say Augustine, but man, I'm from the mountains, and so it's Augustine. All right, so, so he said that doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. So for the believer, doubt is a reality we got to deal with. And, that, and, it, and we don't have to be scared of it. Look the enemy in the eyes, man. Do you believe that God is able to answer your questions and your doubts? Then lean into him, press into his word, and you will find answers. That's not, unbelief is the opposite of faith. And so we take, we take this drifting, we don't address it, it leads to doubting. And then what happens next is we begin to dull. We dull. So we go from the drift to the doubt to the dull. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then that leads to number four, we drop out. We drop out. We cut off fellowship, relationship with people we know will hold us accountable to the word. The effect of this is very broad and all-encompassing. This is why the same guy writing all these warnings will say later in chapter 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need to be part of the local church. You need to be part of a community group, a discipleship group. You need to be part of a campus ministry, but you need to be part of the church, the, the capital C, the church triumphant, the family of God, the community of faith. We need that because what happens is in this progression, we drop out, we cut off fellowship. See this happen. This is so how this goes down. As I consider, what is the progression? This is, this is where it ends up. And lastly, number five, it ends in defiance. We become angry at the word, angry at those who represent it. I've seen this happen so many times where people who serve faithfully in this ministry that I talked about earlier will get to a place where they hate us. I'm like, why do they hate me? I don't know. What do I ever do to this person? Well, it's part of the progression. So that when you, when you drift and end up in this place of walking away from the faith or falling away from the faith or growing indifferent to the faith, ultimately you become defiant towards the thing that demands everything from you. But most importantly, that demands submission. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how much discipleship you receive, how many people you share the gospel with and lead to faith in Jesus, how much ministry you do, how much theological training and education you get, how much leadership development occurs in your life. On day 1,000 and 10,000 of your walk with Jesus, you're still going to be called to this one simple thing, surrender, submission. And when people get to this place of defiance, it's about self, 
governance and autonomy. It's exactly what happened in the garden with our first parents. Did God really say, let me restructure this. I want to be in charge. I want to be like God. I want to be my own God. And so the warning this morning is this. Don't start the drift. Don't start the drift. Pay close attention to Jesus. We can, we can simplify this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We've talked about it already this weekend, and it's going to continue to be the, the theme, and you're going to hear it over and over. Fix your eyes on Jesus, but fix your eyes on the biblical Jesus of Hebrews chapter 1. Maintain an intentional and aggressive submission to the Scripture. That's a, that's, that's, that's a dichotomy. That's, that seems paradoxical. So how do I maintain, how do I aggressively submit? See, see the, there seems to be a contradiction of terms and ideas, Right? Is it a juxtaposition? Like, is it, what, what is that? Is this, how do you aggressively submit? I have, I've got this one dog. I got a bunch of dogs. I got this one dog and he'll come running up to me. Big old dog. He'll come running up to me. And if you saw this dog come running up, his name's Ace. I call him the Ace of Base. I love that dude. He guards our front, front he guards our, our sheep herd. We got a flock of sheep. We got two sheep. We got a flock of sheep. He guards both of them. And he stands down there and then he's a big Pyrenees dog. And people come up, he goes, and like people are like, oh, they're calling. Hey, can I come up the driveway? Ace will come running up to me. Like he looks like he's going to bull rush me, roll me over. And he slams on brakes and throws himself on his back like this. <laughs> it's like aggressive submission. It's like the most aggressive roll over and scratch me on the belly thing I've ever seen. He's like, and I know why. Because when he was about 10 months old, I ran over him with my truck. It was an accident. I did not mean to do it. And ever since then, he respects me. <laughs> but it's just like aggressive, he runs up and bam. But you know what else happened? One day, we're walking down the road, me and Ace. And Ace is walking with me. And there are these two dogs down the road, and they jumped on Ace. And, and he can take care of himself, but it's two big old dogs. One's a pit bull, and they get on Ace. And I beat the snot out of that pit bull with a stick. I, but I, now, now, don't get the wrong picture. I wasn't like gladiator. I was more like a scared old lady getting her purse snatched. I was, I was hitting him like this. You know what I mean? Like, like I grabbed a stick. It was a desperate. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like Francis and Ganu. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw. It wasn't like that. Right? It wasn't a cool. Like I was the man of the. It was more like ah, 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 ah. I'm like panic, slapping, kicking, hit, and the dog. Fine, I must have hit him in the right spot because he ran off yelping. And Ace rolled over and was like, whew, thanks, boss. And he stayed right beside me all the way the house. There's something about when you realize that you've been rescued, the submission to Christ will be aggressive submission. And too many people, I think, think, we think we're submitting to Christ, but it's not aggressive submission. It's like partnership submission. Like, ah, I submit to you. Worship Jesus. Yeah, the worship songs are good and our spirit's moved by the music. Like, but are we aggressively submitting to Christ every day, recognizing he saved us from hell? Gospel ministry and work must inform. This is the last thought for you. I'm at 39 minutes. I wanted to be done at 35. That's normal preacher stuff. All right, so, so you got like extra time, like in soccer. It goes to 40. Okay, so God, last, last, last challenge for you. Gospel ministry and work must inform and drive social and societal work. In other words, you're going to get called into social causes. You're gonna, some of them are really good. You get called into working with the poor, working with the destitute, the social justice causes, like, and it's good. Jesus wants us to minister to the broken and the destitute and the marginalized and the hated, okay? 
But gospel ministry must drive that work. Gospel focus and mentality. If we get this confused, we will be in the current drifting aggressively in the current of societal and cultural flow. And that drift is progressive and won't take us towards holiness. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.